0: This episode of the Royal Ramble is dedicated to the memory of leaping Lanny Poffo. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Royal Ramble. I am your host, as always, Blaine the Brain, and can you believe that it is already February? That is amazing. This year is just flying by already, isn't it? It is damn cold here in Toronto, but the wrestling is still hot. So hot, in fact, that I have a different show to review just about every week, including today, including next week's recap of UFC 284, and then the following weekend is WWE Elimination Chamber in Montreal, and hopefully I will have a special guest on the program in the week leading up to that to help me preview the event. I guess considering this common theme, you might call this feb review huh? Okay, well maybe not. I'm not a dad yet, but I do love their jokes, and I know there are at least a couple of dads out there who may listen to this show and appreciate my humor. But last night was no laughing matter. Well, I guess it was in part, but most of the programs have officially concluded, and we are on the road to WrestleMania weekend for a lot of companies, and I know the next big NXT special, Stand and Deliver, takes place over that weekend as well, so like a game of chess, the WWE has strategically placed its pieces across the board and laid the groundwork for what's to come. And like Paul Levesque often says, we'll have to watch the shows to find out more. That's what I did last night, and I paired it with some pizza, wings, and beer. As an avid weightlifter slash worker-outer, I usually use these WWE Network events as my monthly cheat meals. It's just easier to keep track of, you know? So to open, we had a video montage focusing on some of the key talents and angles heading into the event, which was oddly narrated by SmackDown Women's Champion Charlotte Flair. This felt a bit odd to me until I realized that this show was actually in Charlotte, North Carolina. In fact, Vic noted that it was the first time a takeover took place outside the Performance Center since before the pandemic. Three years ago, can you believe it? It's already been three years. That's wild. But anyway, the last event to take place outside the WWE home base was NXT Portland back in February 2020. The show got underway with a North American title defense as Wes Lee turned back the challenge of Dijak. Honestly, I wasn't really expecting much out of this match as I'm not a fan of either guy. Dijak I haven't liked since ROH, and Lee just never clicked for me as a single star. Both guys have delivered some awful promos heading into this show, but I gotta say, all things considered, this was probably match of the night. As much as I'm not into their characters, I can definitely acknowledge that both can certainly go in the ring, and I was thoroughly impressed, especially with Lee. The match took a while to get going, though. It started with kind of a feeling-out process, with Lee playing a little cat and mouse with his much larger opponent. But then out of nowhere, DiJack hit a nasty-looking Death Valley driver on the floor. Lee answered back with some breathtaking displays of athleticism. First, he backbody dropped Dijak on the ring apron, and then followed up with a cartwheel into a somersault plancha to the outside, which reminded me so much of Japanese legend the great Sasuke, or even Hakushi, who I believe introduced that move to the WWE audience in the 90s. And Lee hit it flawlessly. He then delivered a poison rana in the ring. I'm not a fan of this move because it seems physically impossible to execute, especially when you have an opponent who is twice your size, but Lee made it look pretty good. And then he completed the sequence with the key crusher out of Loki's playbook, or Caval for all the WWE fanboys slash girls, and amazing that after all that, he only got a two-count. He then tried a springboard attack, but DiJack caught him and planted him with the high justice, which again got a two-count. Lee then continued to play homage to some of the high flyers of the past with the spiral tap shades of AJ Styles. Dijak rolled out to ringside and grabbed hold of, I believe, the ring announcer's chair, which was like an office chair. He placed Lee on it and then picked up a broom, which for some reason was at ringside, and used it to trap Lee in the chair. He landed a superkick to Daze Lee and then started going up top, but then suddenly Tony D'Angelo and Stax run out and end up being the recipients of a moonsault by Dijak to the floor, which was meant for Lee. The distraction allows Lee enough time to break free of his chair trap. DiJack tries to meet him in the ring with a springboard, but Lee catches him head-on with a super kick and then delivers a double backflip into a Pele kick out of the corner to finally keep his belt. I'm not sure if there's an official name for that move, but it looked pretty good, and that match was fantastic. Mackenzie Mitchell is in the back with the women's tag team champions Caden Carter and Katana Chance before their match. They basically say they're taking on all challengers. Not really much of a promo here. This leads into the tag title match with Chance and Carter defending against the makeshift team of Kiana James and Fallon Henley, who were accompanied by Brooks and Jensen. Weren't those two just feuding? Why would they even trust each other to team up together? I'm so sick of this thing with tag partners not being able to coexist. Why wouldn't you pick somebody else to team with? It's so dumb. This match was just kind of the opposite of the last match, very sloppy throughout. In fact, I'm tempted to list James as a frontrunner for Worst Female Wrestler of the Year thus far. She was terrible in this one. There was a spot early where Carter went to the floor and smacked Jensen across the butt. I'm sure that'll end up on a future Dark Side of the Ring episode. Actually, the announcers noted that there was once a thing between Carter and Jensen. For the life of me, I cannot remember this at all, but that's likely because I usually skip past anything involving Brooks and Jensen on TV. I did like the matching outfits of the champs here— Kind of reminded me of the Heart Foundation a bit, although my friend Matt Ederer from the SNME radio group suggested that it was a cross between that and Brutus the Barber. Perhaps they might have contacted Von Wagner ahead of the show to find out where to get that outfit. Chance delivered a Hurricane Rana at one point to James, I believe, off the top rope, but also off of Carter's shoulders, which looked kind of weird. I'm not sure why that would be more effective than a regular top rope Hurricane Rana, but I suppose it was a better-looking visual. The finish came when Henley secured a clutch pin on Carter with James from the outside holding Carter's feet down. I guess the basic story here is James constantly cheating behind her partner's back with Henley being completely oblivious to it. The outcome I guess was kind of shocking but there aren't really many teams in the division anyway so I guess they wanted to go more for story here instead of in-ring quality. There was a weird break in the show where Drew Gulak had posted an Instagram video with Hank Walker, basically criticizing Walker's wrestling attire, saying he looks like he's here to fix a sink. Apparently, there are a lot of adult videos that start off that way. Not that I would know from personal viewing experience. Anyway, it needed to be said because Walker does dress like a high school janitor. Lyra Valkyria also posted a video of her own. Admittedly, I wasn't really paying attention to this, but it sounded like she was calling out Cora Jade for Tuesday. The 2 out of 3 falls match was up next. It was Carmelo Hayes against Apollo Crews. I thought this would be match of the night, but I think the opener beat it out. The unfortunate thing about these matches is that fans don't usually get invested in them until the third fall. This one didn't actually get that far though, which I think was the right call. It keeps things a little more unpredictable. It was good, but not highlight reel worthy. It started with a kind of slow pace, which was understandable because they had a lot of time. The pace quickened after they slapped each other. Hayes picked up the first fall after delivering a gourd buster into a cutter, which was pretty unique. He then made Cruz tap to a crossface. Vic made a great point that perhaps Cruz submitted early so as to not expend too much energy heading into the next fall. Cruz hit an incredible-looking running blockbuster, which damn near spiked Mello on his head. It was kind of like Ace Austin's move, The Fold. Trick Williams then got involved and removed the top turnbuckle pad, but it backfired as Cruz reverse-whipped Hayes right into it. Then all of a sudden, this giant of a man pulled Williams off the apron, and it was the former Commander Aziz, who the announcers called by his original name Dabakato. However, this also backfired and ended up distracting Cruz as Mello hit the nothing-but-net to pick up the second straight fall and win the match in a clean sweep. Given the direction that he appears to be going, I'd say this was definitely the right call. After the match, Dabakato gets in the ring and helps Cruz to his feet, and I think just about everyone knew where this was heading at this point. He suckers Cruz in, pretending that he's going to hug him, but ends up dropping him with a vicious headbutt. Cato then delivers a sit-out powerbomb, or baldo-bomb, to Cruz. Brooks and Jensen were in the back, celebrating with the new women's tag team champions, and unfortunately, I couldn't skip forward here. See, this is why I never watch live. Anyway, they talked about going out drinking. The men's tag titles were on the line next in a four-way match, with the New Day defending against Pretty Deadly, Gallus, and Chase U, represented by Andre Chase and Duke Hudson. I am not at all a fan of Chase U. I think it's an outdated gimmick, and the guys playing the role don't do a good job of it. I was against them being in the match until I realized that Chase is actually from Charlotte, so that kind of made sense. I also feared that they might win the belts here, but fortunately that didn't happen. As much as I don't like them, though, I have to admit that they are super over. I can't explain it. Pretty Deadly were awesome in this match. They remind me a lot of the duo Terrence and Phillip from South Park, and they have a lot of old-school British humor, which I love as well. They're kind of like an SNL comedy team. There was a humorous spot in the beginning where Wilson was on Prince's shoulders at ringside, and then Kofi hit a sliding dropkick to knock both of them down. The ref had quickly lost control of this one as everyone had eventually paired off on all sides of the arena, and it was hard to tell who the legal men were. Chase delivered a superplex to one of the pretty deadly guys on top of all the other opponents at ringside. There was another funny spot where someone had set up the announce table to put another person through, but that move was thwarted, and then pretty deadly just reset the table with all the equipment on it. That lasted all of about 5 seconds, as Gallus ended up hitting a double chokeslam to Hudson right through that same table. The end kinda came out of nowhere, as Gallus was left alone with Xavier Woods in the ring, and hit a double-team forearm and power slam to pick up the win and the titles. I did like that they ended up pinning the champs, though, and hopefully this signals the end of the New Day's NXT run, which I think has been an epic failure. The women's title was on the line next. It was Roxanne Perez defending against both members of Toxic Attraction, Gigi Dolan and JC Jane. At the start of this match, I was scrambling my brain to try and figure out what this match reminded me of. And then suddenly it hit me. It's totally Cinderella and her evil stepsisters, but more of like an off-Broadway production. This was basically what you would expect, the two heels working together against the babyface champion until it was actually time to make the pin. The match was okay, it wasn't anything spectacular, but I did feel like all three did a good job of playing to the crowd. Actually, I was very surprised that the majority of the audience seemed to be solidly behind Dolan. There were times that chants for her were even eclipsing those of the champion Roxanne. Actually, I didn't even realize that she's married to Darby Allen. maybe that had something to do with it. The two heels had set up the table near the announce desk, and the basic finish was that they were trying to double-team Roxanne, who was positioned on the top turnbuckle. She ended up kicking Dolan off, and Dolan fell through the table. Meanwhile, Roxanne planted Jane with a super pop rocks from the top rope to keep her belt. And then it was main event time inside the steel cage, Braun Breaker defending his NXT world title against Grayson Waller. Waller was a master of the mind games in this match, and this guy is going to be a huge star if they keep this ball rolling. He could be this company's MJF. He came out wearing something similar to the King Arthur-style headgear of Breaker's uncle Scott Steiner. Before Breaker even got into the ring, Waller met him head-on and drop the cage door right into his face. Honestly, a match like this without blood isn't quite the same. Breaker came back and swung the door right back into the face of Waller, and they both finally got into the ring. Waller hit a really impressive-looking unprettier where he kind of just flipped 360 over the back of Breaker from behind and then rode him all the way down, driving his face into the canvas. I don't think I've ever seen that delivery before. Breaker answered back with a Frankensteiner off the top rope. Later on, Waller got some serious hang time with a really impressive-looking elbow drop off the top rope. He then tied Breaker up in the ropes and started paint brushing him and taunting. Breaker eventually had enough and powered his way out of that predicament and then just started bouncing Waller off of each side of the cage. In a last-ditch effort, Waller connected with a low blow and then followed up with that rolling stunner move he likes to do. Breaker then followed Waller up to the top of the cage. Waller was actually standing on the very top, and it looked like an incredible spot was about to happen, but Breaker just ended up superplexing him off the top rope, which I guess was a lot safer than what I was expecting, but kind of underwhelming at the same time. Breaker then hit a spear in the ring, and Waller was on his knees continuing to taunt Breaker and begging him to finish him off. So Breaker got a running start and then hit another massive spear after bouncing off the ropes to finally put Waller away and retain the title. You know what, ordinarily I'd have picked Waller to win, but because we're in Mania season, I think Breaker should be the champion heading into that weekend, as I don't expect him to be called up until after WrestleMania. And then as Breaker was celebrating, Carmelo Hayes and Trick Williams come out to the entrance and just kind of taunt Breaker from there. And this appears to be the next title program, which I can't say I have a problem with. So that was my recap of NXT Vengeance Day. Next week, I preview the WWE Elimination Chamber event, including my fantasy forecast, and I also review UFC 284. Until then, I leave you as always with an A, B, C. Yeah.